When I first went to university in the fall of 1993, I brought along with me this old computer that my parents were getting rid of. It didn't even have a modem, but that didn't really matter because the internet wasn't really a thing yet that people used. It basically just collected dust on my desk that first term. All my notes, all my research papers, everything I did was on yellow pads and composition books handwritten. Now, my roommate John, he was from England, and he also brought a computer, but unlike me, he actually used it. One night, we were working hard on some final papers that we had due the next day. He was clicking and clacking away on his keyboard, and I was shuffling uh, about two dozen different pages all across my desk, pages of various notes and, and, and paragraphs. I had these circles written around one paragraph from page two and a line that said cut and paste to page five. I literally cut and pasted paragraphs that I wanted to move around. But, but for the most part, John and I were working at about the same pace. Now, just when I had all my work organized, I heard this shaking on his desk as his old-fashioned dot matrix printer came to life, producing the final product. Meanwhile, me on the other hand, well, I had uh, just gotten to the stage where I was about ready to rewrite my final draft, and I would be doing so for over the next hour or so. It, it's kind of how I had always done it, right? I was really proficient at handwriting my papers, and I just chalked it up to being old school. But then John showed me how he could cut and paste on his screen, how he could check the spelling and make corrections without whiteout. And I didn't switch to a computer or a word processor because John ridiculed me or because he judged me. I made the change because he showed me a better way. And then I could imagine uh, my research going a different way. So that's such a simple example. And honestly, I didn't have much besides familiarity and habit to overcome in making the shift from handwriting to word processing. But there are many other things in life that do require more drastic changes. So overcoming an addiction, for example, takes complete transformation of the way we interact with ourselves and others and God, let alone our routines and, and, and the way we deal with pain. Most addicts know that addiction is not healthy. They will tell you it's not productive, and they might even know that it's destroying their lives. But change takes more than cognitive reasoning. It takes a positive vision. It takes an imagination of a better way of living. In our story today from Acts 19, 8 through 41, the Apostle Paul is continuing on in his missionary journey, and he's come to stop at Ephesus, one of the major cities in the Roman Empire. Paul stays there for over two years, sharing the good news of Jesus and the inbreaking kingdom of God. And just like his other missionary stops, Paul is met with resistance both from in the synagogue and from the pagan community. The gospel of Jesus always meets with resistance because it's, it's more than a set of beliefs or a different philosophy. It, it's proclaiming an alternate kingdom that requires us to change. And change is always hard. Now, throughout the story, I'm going to be making some key observations. But the question that is driving me as I was praying and pondering this, as I'm studying the text this week, is why? Why would people be motivated to follow Jesus when doing so required so much change and so much resistance and persecution? My only conclusion is that Jesus provides a better way, a better vision for life. Would you pray with me? 
Lord Jesus, thank you for this word passed down to us through your Apostle Paul and through the various generations of the church. Thank you for this image, for this confrontation that we see, where you provide a better way than the status quo. And I pray, Holy Spirit, for your ministry to us right now, that as we encounter this text, that we would see afresh the better way of Jesus, and that you would convict us to repent of the ways when we are going astray and living outside of the kingdom. Amen. So in this story, we learn that Paul, as was his custom, started off teaching in the local synagogue. Uh, he could find common ground there uh, because he could assume that people knew the scriptures. And uh, we know from his other sermons that he likely continued to preach Jesus as the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise to Israel. And for many, this was the cause for good news. But as seemed to also happen on a regular basis, eventually there was a faction in the synagogue. And those who were hardened to the gospel uh, begin speaking e evil of the Jesus movement and of Paul. And so Paul just leaves after three months and he moves over to this other place to teach called the School of Tyrannus. Now, in ancient Greco-Roman cities, there were often schools of philosophy and rhetoric, and the School of Tyrannus was likely one of these. Now, we have no idea who this Tyrannus guy was, but his name means tyrant or dictator. I mean, what a weird name. Like, I wonder if his mom named him Tyrannus or if that was the nickname he got from his students or from people in town. Who knows? Uh, we don't even know if he was a convert to the way of Jesus or maybe he was just a benevolent teacher who allowed Paul to work from his school for two years. I mean, who knows? But what we do know is that the churches of Asia, the churches, for example, that are addressed in the beginning of Revelation, like Smyrna and Pergamum and uh, Theatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. They came to know Jesus from this base of Paul's ministry out of the school of Tyrannus. In verse 11, we switch focus to some of the extraordinary signs that God was doing through the ministry of Paul. Now, these are truly strange things. People were being healed by just touching the handkerchiefs and aprons of Paul. Now, these garments, when we think handkerchief, we think something you blow your nose into, or an apron, I always think of like grilling or somebody cooking, right? Um, but that's not what they were. The, these garments were the sweat rags that people would wear. So the handkerchief was kind of around the head, and the apron was another word for this kind of cloth that went around your midsection, uh, and the, they were meant to soak up sweat. And so people were being healed by touching the sweat cloths discarded from Paul. And so not only is that kind of gross, but it's extraordinary. Our minds might immediately go to Jesus, who healed the woman with the hemorrhage, who simply touched the edge of his cloak before he even knew she was there. And because of her faith, she was healed. And I think what Luke wants us to see is that just as the kingdom of God was breaking in through the physical ministry of Jesus, so it continues to break in through the ongoing ministry of the Spirit through the church. And Luke is careful to do two things. He explicitly says that these signs and wonders were the work of God through Paul, and that these events were unique or extraordinary. That is, we should not expect this type of thing to be normative, right? So the question is then, why would God choose to do these types of signs and wonders in this specific instance in Ephesus? To get the answer to that question, we have to understand a bit more about the ancient world and Ephesus in particular. So 
let's consider a contemporary city like Bellingham, Washington, where most of us live, right? And if we were to think of cultural norms, one thing would be very clear. We are a culture of compartments. And these compartments are reflected in things like our architecture. So here's an example. If we were looking at a map, an aerial map, or we did a walking tour of Bellingham with a first century person from Ephesus, they might ask us like, why are there so many little houses dotted in these neighborhoods where everyone has their own kitchen and their own bathroom and their own living space, but only a few people live in each one? See, we emphasize the nuclear family. We think that something is wrong if a person doesn't set out on their own after they reach adulthood. But in the first century world, multiple generations would live under the same roof. And rather than each house having its own kitchen and bathroom, there would be shared facilities and common spaces throughout the city that people would mingle at and share, and, and it was a much more communal lifestyle. Right? So we are compartmentalized into nuclear family. Ancient Mediterranean world was much more communal. Okay? Another big difference is the way we compartmentalize religion. We have churches and synagogues and mosques and temples in Bellingham, and that's where we do religious stuff. But if you look at our city hall or courthouses or shopping centers, you'll notice that there's a conspicuous lack of religious symbols. And most people in our culture think that that's a good thing, that we have our compartments for religion and our compartments for state and our compartments for public life, okay? But in the ancient world, every aspect of human life was integrated with the gods and goddesses. Temples were, in essence, also banks. That's where everybody's money was. And you would find sacrificial shrines in homes and in public squares and in courthouses. In Bellingham, you might go to church to pray. And you might go to the court to settle legal matters, or you go to a hospital to seek healing, or you go to work to ply a trade, or to school to grow intellectually. But in a place like Ephesus, everything was religious. Everything had spiritual implications. And the predominant view was that the spiritual beings were unpredictable, dangerous, and to be feared. Ephesus was the center of the magical arts in the ancient world. People there made amulets and books of charms and spells that they believed would protect them from harm and that could heal them from ailments and give them good crops or good relationships with others or, in some circumstances, curse others. There's whole books of curses that we have from the ancient world. Well, people believed that through saying the right words in the right way, they could manipulate the spirit world in such a way as to avoid trouble, at least as much as possible. And life, it seemed to be lived on pins and needles all the time, just barely tiptoeing through life as to not make big waves. But here's the point. Unlike America, where we think too little of the spiritual, where we think we can sort of pick and choose a religion, or choose to be atheist, or like many, choose a little religion from this group, and a little hum secular humanism, and a little Eastern oneness, religion in Ephesus was part of the whole social fabric of their life. So to be Ephesian was to be a worshiper of Artemis, the great goddess. It was to be a user of magic. It was to participate in the festivals of worship to the emperor and to the gods and goddesses. It was their identity, their calendar, their economy, their life. So you see, 
becoming a follower of Jesus wasn't just a change in a set of beliefs or something they could tack on to the way that they were already living. It was a wholesale change of identity and the way that they related to culture. So it's in that setting that God releases power to do what their magic could not do, what their pantheon of gods and goddesses would not do, to do what God does, heal and restore and bring life to all because of his grace and mercy. So all of a sudden, people are being healed and demons are being cast out and they're seeing real power of God work through Paul in the gospel of Jesus. And some Jewish exorcists saw this and they wanted to tap into that power. So these seven sons of a so-called Sceva, who is a Jewish high priest, they'd been listening to Paul. And when they, when they met an opportunity to do an exorcism, they tried to apply Paul's technique as if it were magic. And so they demand that the spirit come out of this afflicted man with these words, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And something amazing happens, actually kind of funny and would be scary. The spirit in this man who's afflicted stops and says to these seven sons, Hey, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul but who are you? And this evil spirit through the body of the afflicted man kicks all seven of their butts and he strips them naked and sends them off running publicly in shame. And we learn three valuable lessons from this passage in Acts 19. First, I want you to notice that the seven sons of Sceva were trying to do a good thing. Unlike the former magician Simon from Acts chapter 8, these guys, they're not trying to buy power of the Spirit for their own glory. They simply saw the effectiveness of God's power, and they wanted to help a man who was really oppressed by a demon. But the warning is this. They tried to do the good work of God without having a relationship with him. See, Paul is dependent on God. He does what the Spirit leads him to do. And sometimes the Spirit releases power to do amazing things. And other times, Paul moves on from town to town. Other, sometimes he's not protected at all and he's almost stoned to death or arrested. But the seven sons of Sceva try to apply the laws of magic to the works of God. And it's an important warning to all of us who want to do good things in the world, even godly things. But it's a warning that if we try and do them when we're not rooted in Christ, we'll fail. There are so many important issues that God cares deeply about. Racial injustice, economic justice, care for creation, criminal justice reform, care for the unborn and care for the poor and care for the elderly, care for immigrants and ethnic minorities and sexual minorities. But if we try and tackle this work without a living relationship with Jesus, who guides and empowers the work, we're going to become angry and bitter and ultimately ineffective and isolated from God and from his people. So ask yourself, if you're involved in areas of justice or healing or teaching, are you abiding in Jesus? Are you connecting with him in prayer and in scripture and in worship? If you're listening to me now, that's a great start. What might Jesus be inviting you to in this moment, in this season? Now, the second lesson comes in the way that people react to the work of God. 
These Ephesians, whose very cultural reality was wrapped up in the occult and in magic, they decide by their own volition, that is key, to burn their books of magic spells, okay? Now, not only was this a cultural repentance, but it hurt them economically as well. All in all, the value of these books was valued at over 137 years worth of wages for an average laborer. And notice that no one told them to do this. Paul didn't say, you know, if you want to follow Jesus or be part of the church, you've got to burn your books. I remember certain fundamentalist movements in the United States in the 80s and 90s where there were literal book burnings and, and burnings of music, particularly heavy metal albums that many feared were satanic. Anyone out there have teenagers? Do you think making them burn their music and books will actually change the way their hearts work? No, it's ridiculous. Change always takes an act of God, and we should be very cautious to read into this text any kind of mandate to force external changes when, when we know the only lasting changes come from God changing our hearts. Luke describes these people as having a holy fear of God, and that, that, that awe and reverence encourages them then to, to exalt Jesus and to magnify him. If we're trying to make changes in the world or in other people, but we aren't doing it out of a sense of worship, we need to stop and check our motives. But Paul isn't telling people what not to do. He shows the people a better way, not only through some signs and wonders, but also by his holy life and through the love of the community of Jesus that he invites them into. It's the community itself of the Ephesians. Let me rephrase that. It's the community of pagan Ephesians that comes to see their idols, literal and figurative, as insufficient in light of Jesus. They come to see, through the ministry of Paul's uh, uh, signs and wonders and through his teaching, that Jesus is the better way. And once people accept Jesus as the better way, they're convicted that their idols are insufficient. And therefore, they repent. They renounce the false way in favor of the way. But this passage isn't just about other people who don't yet know Jesus. Um, it's about those many of us who are already following Jesus. And that leads us to a third lesson. Following Jesus is a dynamic relationship. It inherently involves action. Being a Christian is not something like a static label you receive when you believe certain points of doctrine. Following Jesus will always involve points of opposition because he will reveal our idols and our, addic our addictions and our misperceptions about how the world really works. In the last section of the story, there's this massive crowd who are resistant to Jesus and the gospel. They have rightly come to see that if you play out what following Jesus means, it will require a change of life and, and a change of culture. No more idolatry means no more idols, which means no more buying special foods in the market, and so that market suffers. No more buying amulets from the charm makers, and no more buying idols from the silversmiths like Demetrius. And it could mean the collapse of the economy that is built on idolatry. Now, these angry crowds have seen what following Jesus will cost, but they have failed to see the better way. And I wonder, in this season of global crisis, if we have lost track of the better way. I wonder 
with you, if we have been overly focused on what we don't have and what we can't do, that we've sought relief from the idols of pleasure or escapist entertainment, or even politics as some sort of savior for us, or any number of other fleeting solutions. In studying this passage, I, for one, have heard the call of Jesus to consider the way of life. Consider that it's Jesus who has forgiven our sin, not my culture that tells me I'm okay just doing anything I like. Consider that it's Jesus who speaks to us in prayer and in scripture and in the Christian community. We don't need to guess our path in life or to be controlled by our fickle appetites. Consider that it's Jesus who gives us a home, a place to belong in the church. He's given us a family that cares and nurtures, that rejoices with us and mourns with us, and maybe most importantly, holds us up in faithful prayer when our own faith is weary and lacking. And consider that Jesus makes all things new, that he will bring oppressive regimes to their knees, and that he will raise up the oppressed. And consider that he invites us to join him in this work, but never places the responsibility or the outcomes on our shoulders. Consider that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. That he's shown us a better way, the way to fullness of life. And so I invite us to turn to him afresh. We're going to transition now to a time of healing prayer. Uh, Emma Wilson is going to enter into that time for she's going to lead us into that time through a, a kingdom sighting, a, a, a place where she saw God at work recently this summer. And then the Wilsons are going to play some instrumental music and you'll have an opportunity uh, to literally pray for healing, maybe for the, for the world or for uh, someone in the room with you. But you may also want to respond to what Jesus is saying to you through this message. Maybe he's calling you to come back home to him to abide in him more fully so that you can be more free and more faithful in the way. Bless you.